The only other time in any other Christian writing ever is in that letter from the second century. This pair appears only one other time in all of Greek literature. So we're talking about something that is extremely distinct in all of the writings from the ancient world. The other reference, the one in the Greek literature that is secular, it refers to a servant and a steward of Zeus. Connected to the greatest God in the ancient world. Zeus was the God of all gods in Greek mythology. So Paul doesn't use this phrase anywhere else. Nobody else uses it in the New Testament. So because that happens, you have to pause and say, this is so unique. Paul must have been intentional in bringing in these words into this passage. It's not just a regular word for servant like diakonos, deacon. Or doulas, you've heard those words, I'm sure. I'm sure Eric and Danny were trying to show off their Greek knowledge with those thrown out Greek words at you once in a while. But those are standard words in the New Testament. You know, doulas, diakonas, deacon, slave. Not the words here. So we have to ask the question, why is Paul going out of his way to use a unique word that he doesn't want to use anywhere else in the New Testament, but he wants to use it here? What is the point of such a unique connection? What happens is that Paul uses a word that appears for the first time back a thousand years BC. A thousand years BC. It's a unique word. It means servant. So we're looking at that first word as servants of Christ. Servant. And the oldest reference we have refers to the god Hermes, who's supposed to be the messenger from the gods in the Greek pantheon, the collection of gods. And so he, Hermes, the god Hermes, is representing the will of Zeus, the greatest of all gods. Therefore, he is backed by the authority and the power of Zeus. He's coming as his messenger with all the force that Zeus has. He comes with that influence and that authority. The men in the city of Delphi were called servants, same word, of the god Apollo, a great god in the ancient world as well. You've probably heard of the term, the Oracle of Delphi. The Oracle of Delphi is a woman who is supposed to kind of see the future and communicate with the god Apollo and then communicate those mysteries, that's both language in verse 1, to the people in her area. She was considered to be the most powerful woman in the classical world because she's an associate of Apollo. The Oracle of Delphi is the most well-documented of all religions in the ancient world. Everybody writes about this. The Greeks, the Romans, everybody reveres her. She goes back to at least... 8th century BC, some go back, take her back to the 15th century BC. And what she was doing was communicating the mysteries of the god Apollo. So Paul is picking up vocabulary from these religions in the Greek world that are uniquely connected to the greatest gods in the Greek pantheon. To those who are representatives of these gods who are at the very top of the system. They're the ones who are 
communicated on behalf of Apollo or Zeus, and Apollos is named after the god Apollo. So in other words, you have a Christian who converted from worshiping one of these gods and became a Christian. Probably his parents were worshipers of Apollo and named him after that god. So what you have to understand is that Delphi, the city, was located near Corinth. So if you look at the map, it's not too far away. So what Paul is trying to do is to essentially enter the religious environment of Corinth. Look, you know, it's, it's not nearby, but it's close enough. And say, you, this area around Corinth, worship the Oracle of Delphi. She allegedly communicates the mysteries of Apollo to the humanity. And Paul says, we are those who communicate the mysteries of the true God. He's trying to set himself up against the false God, Apollo or Zeus or anyone else. Paul and Apollos entered this pagan environment as the representatives of the true God of all gods. And then you move over 40 miles from Corinth to Athens. And Socrates was from Athens. He was doing his ministry, philosophizing, that is to say, in Athens. And he uses this, a noun of the word servant, about himself, and he says that what has been given to me from the gods is a servanthood. You could call it like a responsibility, but he uses that word so that I am faithful to this responsibility without concern to myself. So when you begin to look at this unique term in the ancient world, you've got Socrates, who's a great philosopher, viewing his responsibility to be a philosopher in Athens as this stewardship effectively given to him by the gods to philosophize the people in Athens. And then you take it to the religious realm, and now you're talking about the gods of all gods being represented by Delphi, the oracle of Delphi, as the greatest of all women communicating the mysteries of the god Apollo. What you have to understand is that Paul is saying, when you think of Christians, specifically leaders in this case, but I do believe this applies beyond just the pastors and the preachers, because Paul in verse 7 says, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? He's now broadening the scope of conversation to all Christians. That's a stewardship discussion. So what Paul is trying to do is to say, when you think of yourself and your identity, think of yourself as a servant and a steward. And in the context of the historical event here in the culture of that day, we're talking about representation of the God of all gods. So as you think about stewardship, you have to make sure that you contextualize this whole discussion in that realm. It's an important discussion. It has value and and elegance, you could say, and, and specific superiority than whatever else you might be concerned about in life. You are a steward. You are a representative. You are a servant of the true and living God. Now, the pair, servant and Steward, as I said, only appears in three places. Here, that second century document, and then this other document in reference to Zeus. Now, the word servant, generally speaking, does appear in other fields. 
Most of the time when that appears in the Bible, in the New Testament, it appears in the context of the military. The military. 75% of the time, there's only 23 times, but 75% of the time, it has to talk, it talks about the soldier. Let me just give you one example. In John 18, when Jesus is speaking to Pilate, and you remember Jesus is talking to Pilate, and Pilate says, what is truth? Sarcastically, he's basically mocking Jesus, that Jesus comes as a representative of the truth. Jesus says, for this reason I was born, to testify for the truth. And Pilate mocks him back, but Jesus says, and, and then Pilate says, are you a, the king? And Jesus says, hey, if I was a king of this world, my soldiers, my servants, my disciples, but he doesn't refer to them as disciples. He refers to them as servants, but the context there is my soldiers would fight for me. So when Jesus thinks about his followers as being servants, he identifies them as those who would be willing to fight for him. Those who are his representatives like a soldier. So the New Testament looks at this individual word servant, just a two dozen times, as I said, just even less than two dozen times, as a way to connect us to a specific responsibility. A soldier always does what his commander tells him. And in the ancient world, if a soldier was disobedient, in the Roman military at least, if there is any kind of disobedience, if there is somebody who abandoned the cohort, every tenth person would be executed to instill obedience and submission to the general. There was loyalty that was expected. Anybody who abandons his post, even in our military, is also going to experience dishonorable discharge, if not actually prosecuted for that crime. But then you also see in Acts 26, 16, Paul using that word servant, just as a separate away from steward, in reference to him being a minister of the gospel. So we've got a connection to being a soldier. We have a connection to these kind of superior gods, Zeus and so on, Apollo. And now we have a connection to a servant in Acts 26, 16, being a servant or a minister is how it's translated in the English, of the gospel. In Luke chapter 1 and 2, Luke says that the disciples and the apostles were servants of the word that was handed down. So now you have a responsibility that becomes a little bit more clear. Your loyalty as a servant is to Christ like a soldier. Your authority comes from the God of all gods. Your connection as what you're supposed to do is you are a minister of the word. Now, in that context, it's specifically apostles, Luke 1, 2. But it builds a portrait and a profile of a Christian who understands his or her role in relationship to Jesus. That we have a responsibility to be faithful servants of his word. We're talking about accountability. and We're talking about loyalty. So let me define this, kind of put it all together. Let me define it this way. To be a servant of Christ is to be a loyal servant who understands his or her identity that is subservient to his authority because you are an agent under Christ's reputation and banner. 
It is to be a loyal servant who understands his or her identity is to be subservient to his authority, Christ's authority, because you are his agent. That is what servant means. This is different than doula's slave. This is different than diaconus, deacon. Those focus on your role as serving, like a humble position. These, this word rather, is all about authority. It's all about representation. It's all about agency. A very different understanding of who you are as a Christian in this world. That's the word servant, as servants of Christ. The second word that he uses in verse 1 is, you are a steward of the mysteries of God. Stewards in the ancient world weren't given freedom to operate as freelance operators. They weren't out there for hire. Rather, in the New Testament, the word for steward has to do with what, um, I think it was Eric who read the, kind of the understanding of stewardship for the weekend as being a manager, somebody who manages another person's assets. And we see that in the gospel stories of Jesus saying parables of a good and faithful steward, unfaithful steward. It's a similar concept there, that you enter somebody's household and you're entrusted with the possessions, and then you become either a faithful or an unfaithful steward. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the list of qualifications for elders, it uses this word, that you are a steward in the household of God. But you're supposed to steward your family as a testing ground before you become an elder in the church. Because it says, if you can't steward your own family, how are you going to steward the church of God? So that's the experimentation or the testing that should be proven. In Romans chapter 16, verse 23, there's a reference to a man named Erastus. Erastus, and it says, a city steward greets you. So what probably happened is Erastus, Paul's one of Paul's associates, was a city manager. That's the idea there. He was probably like a CFO in the city where he was working. In 1929, so just almost 100 years ago, they found an inscription in Latin in Corinth that said this, Erastus, in return for his work as the commissioner of public works, laid this pavement at his own expense. So most likely the Erastus of Romans 16.23 is the Erastus who was found in this inscription about a hundred years ago, a man who was so important in Corinth, so wealthy, so successful, that there's a plaque with his name on it that had survived until 1929. So what we see in that little illustration is you have a, a Christian who is an associate of Paul's who reached a, towards the top of the Corinthian political structure and yet preserved his Christian testimony, and Paul calls him a steward. Talking about somebody who was trusted. So, summarizing what we're talking about, Paul bringing in two words that appear individually, very infrequently in the New Testament, but never together outside of this passage. He wants us to understand what we're talking about. You are a servant, and with that comes authority and backing from God. And you are a steward who is a manager. And you're supposed to fulfill that responsibility as a good manager. 
And as Paul develops the rest of the paragraph, there are four implications for us as Christians when we function as stewards and servants. Four implications for us as stewards and servants. The first is authority. I mentioned this already, but it's authority. You and I are affiliated with Christ. We're his affiliates. Paul says you are a servant of Christ. Paul immediately ties our identity to Christ. It's an identity statement. In other words, you don't have the freedom to go rogue. You are always attached to Christ. You've repented from your sins and you've been assigned, you've been united to Christ. The in Christ formula appears about a hundred times in the New Testament. That's how Paul thinks about himself. He doesn't refer to himself as a Christian. That word only appears three times in the New Testament. It was used by the enemies of the Christians, actually, as a mocking term. Oh, those are Christians. When Paul talks about himself as a Christian, he says, I'm in Christ. Because that's an identity statement. I'm always attached to Christ. So in other words, the first implication is that we have authority that is attached to Christ. The second implication is awareness. Awareness, and that is from this phrase at the end of verse 1, mysteries of God. You are aware that your authority is limited. Paul says, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We're not stewards of everything in this world. We're not the authority on every single subject in this world. As a Christian, your authority is limited by being aware that you proclaim the mysteries of God. Now, I think we are tempted to push the limit of our authority. You think about Genesis chapter 3, for example. When Satan comes to Eve and tempts her to sin, he finally gets her to sin when he says to her, you will be like God. That's pushing the line. God confined Adam and Eve to a specific place inside a specific parameter of submission, giving, him, giving them access to everything in the Garden of Eden except for one thing. God put a line of authority on them, a, re, a limitation. Satan wants to remove that limitation and says, you'll be like God. Have no limitations if you eat that fruit. And I think we often fall for that temptation. I don't want anyone to put limitations on my life. I want to be truly independent. And refusing to embrace God's limitations on your life is an act of disobedience. Even Jesus had a specific purpose to accomplish. Jesus, according to his human nature, had a specific focus. In Luke chapter 12, there's a story about somebody in the crowd shouting out to Jesus and saying, Teacher, tell my brother to divide inheritance with me. And Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter between you? We know from a couple of chapters later, Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus' awareness of his own limitation, and I want to be careful, I know Jesus is God, but we're talking about Jesus according to his human nature. In that role, he was truly human. 
And he had a purpose to accomplish, that is, to make God's name known, to bring, bring the gospel of forgiveness. And he says, I'm not here to decide whether your inheritance is equally and fairly divided. That's not my function here. My role, as defined by the Father, is to bring the gospel. So we also need to recognize that God has placed limits on us. Practically speaking, we're talking about specific spiritual gifts. Because back in chapter 3, Paul talks about an individual who plants, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, God caused the growth. So even there, he says, we have a unique responsibility, each of us, to play in the kingdom of God. Some are fantastic evangelists. Others are fantastic teachers. Others are fantastic preachers. Others are fantastic musicians. Others are fantastic givers. Others are more gifted in praying and encouraging and showing compassion and on and on and on. You have multiple lists in the New Testament of the spiritual gifts. God has given you a personal, tailor-made gift as a Christian. It's the gift from the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12 says, the Spirit gives to whomever He wishes whatever He wishes. And that's the way you function in the kingdom of God. You don't only have four preachers in your church. Some of you will become preachers, but that's a gift of God as He entrusts it to you. But as we go through our Christian life, we keep bumping into these limitations, being frustrated that I can't do that or that. I wish I was that way or that way. And we ultimately become useless if we keep trying to change what God has entrusted to us. We have to be aware that God in his providence, verse 7 says, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? It's from God by his divine providence. So the implication of being a servant and a steward is secondly, awareness. And third, accountability. Accountability. In verse 2, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. That's accountability. That is what God expects of every steward. Well done, Matthew 25, good and faithful steward. That's a line that is going to be communicated by Jesus Christ when we see him face to face at the end of our stewardship, whether he comes back to take us or when we die. Well done, good and faithful steward. Steward Paul says it is of utmost importance that stewards be found faithful. Faithful to fulfill the responsibility of proclaiming the mysteries of God. And Paul says in this context of evaluation of being faithful or unfaithful, verse 3, he says, it's a small thing for me that I may be examined by you or by any other human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. I'm conscious of nothing against myself. I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So don't go on passing judgment before the time. Wait until the Lord comes back. He will bring to light the thing which is hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. What Paul's trying to communicate here is that only God sees the motives of men's hearts. 
And there's a testing and an examination that's coming. If you look at chapter 3 for just a second, in verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Another one is building on it. Again, different responsibilities within the kingdom of God. I laid the foundation. Somebody else begins to build the next layer. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will, be re- he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer lo- lo- loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So Paul is anticipating judgment day for each believer for the way we stewarded our lives. The works that we offer to God in this life as this is my life, an offering to you. But Paul says some of the acts that we will offer to God will be examined and some will burn up. And so connecting that little paragraph in chapter 3 with the paragraph I read in chapter 4, we're talking about the motives of men's hearts. Only God knows the true motives of why we did what we did in his kingdom. Was it for self-promotion? Was it for pay? Was it for recognition? God knows the motivation of our hearts. And Paul says at some point in the future, you will be examined, and it is of utmost importance that you are found faithful. But he does say that there are works that are produced, and they'll be examined. So that means that our faithfulness is demonstrated by fruitfulness. In Matthew 7, when Jesus talks about false uh, Pharisees and false kind of prophets and false teachers, he says, by their fruits, you will know them. So fruit is a marker of authenticity. In the parable about the sower and the seed, the seed that fell on good ground produced 30, 60, 100-fold. So any soil that is real soil for the gospel, genuinely receiving the gospel and believing in it, will be fruitful. Maybe it's only 30, maybe it's 60, maybe it's 100-fold. But there is fruit. A true Christian life is never fruitless. That's what Jesus is saying in that parable. In John 15, Jesus talks about his disciples being appointed to bear much fruit. So you have multiple places in the New Testament where the followers of Jesus are expected to produce fruit. And the statement, well done, good and faithful servant, is in the parable about somebody who is bringing back additional results to the master. Something was entrusted, five talents, two talents, one talent, and they bring back additional talents. And that's the statement that solicits, well done, good and faithful servant. So as you think about your life as a steward and as a servant of Christ, you have to begin to measure your life of fruitfulness. That is the element of faithfulness. It is required that you be faithful. And faithfulness is measured by fruitfulness. And God 
determines all that in his sovereign way, how fruitful you'll be. It's God's unique providence that he created Spurgeon. And John Calvin and Martin Luther and Augustine and Ignatius and Polycarp and the disciples and that you live now and that you weren't part of the Reformation and you weren't part of the Great Awakening under Jonathan Edwards and that you're here in this church at this time and that you work for Google or Apple or Facebook. It's God's prerogative in his sovereign determination for your life to place you in a specific time in history and a specific place in history. If you want a passage for that, go to Acts 17, where it says between verses 24 and 32 that God is the author of your life. He decides when you're born and how long you live. He's the architect of your life. He he decides where you are in life, whether you live in Russia or in America, in China or, or in the Bay Area. And he's the authority of your life because he says there's coming a day of judgment and he will hold us accountable. That's God's prerogative. But within the sovereign plan of God for your life, he expects us to be faithful wherever we are. And in that faithfulness, verse 7 says, we acknowledge. We acknowledge that everything that we have has been given to us. Everything is a gift. Romans 12.3 says, the gift that was given to me. Romans 15.10, by the grace of God, I am who I am. So when Paul says this, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That's acknowledging that it is God's gift to me to receive what I have received, to be a faithful steward and servant. Some will be preachers. Some will be evangelists like Billy Graham. And some will be faithful professionals at Apple, proclaiming the gospel in a very dark world. And some will become professors. And some will become mathematicians. And some will become philosophers and economists. And some will become moms and raise up a godly generation that will push back against the sinful world of the society as they proclaim the gospel to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. It is God's prerogative to give you and make you who you are. And the desires that you have and the gifts that you have as you serve Christ as his steward and as his servant. All that is a gift. If you are at Berkeley, that's God's gift to you that you got into Berkeley. If you're at Stanford, it's God's gift to you that you got into Stanford. He gave you the ability to accomplish that kind of intellectual um, elegance. Let me say it that way. It's his gift to you. And now he says, steward that for the advancement of my kingdom. Don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. The story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 5 is a story that I'm sure most of us are familiar with. But he sees this dream, 
and he wants an interpretation of the dream, and Daniel shows up to interpret it. And he says this, King, my advice to you is break away from your sins by doing righteousness and break away from your, from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor so that your prosperity may be prolonged. That's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. And the next scene, 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof of his house in Babylon. It says the king is reflecting as he walks on the roof of his house and he says this, is this not the Babylon the great that I myself have built as a royal residence by my might and my power and for the glory of my majesty? I did this, I did it my way, and I did it for myself. And the next scene, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, it is declared to you that sovereignty has been removed from you. And you know, for seven years, he functioned like an animal, eating grass. And at the end of that seven-year period, the ending of chapter 4, says he ultimately recognized that God is sovereign and he gives sovereignty and authority to whomever he wishes. That's the acknowledgement that we make with our lives as stewards of Christ, as servants of Christ, that everything that I have, I didn't do it with my own power, I didn't do it my way, and I didn't do it for myself. I did it by God's power, for the fame of his name, because he has gifted that to me. Because I recognize that there's coming a day when I will be examined. My motivations will be examined. And then God will reward or my works will be burnt up, as chapter 3 said. Maybe you're just starting your career. Maybe you're about to graduate. And you're excited and you're ready to take on the world. And that's a good thing. Just remember who your master is. Remember who you are a steward of and a servant of as a Christian. And don't pursue your identity in any accomplishment, in any affiliation, or in any asset that you will buy. Remember that it's God's providence to give you what you have and to place you where you are. And to remember, help you remember that, think about Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish Presbyterian preacher in the 1600s in England. He wrote many letters and sermons and devotionals and scholastic works. He pastored for many years in England. He was a graduate of the University of Edinburgh. He was a professor of divinity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, ultimately becoming a rector of that university. He was given multiple job offers in Holland, in Utrecht. He declined all of them. He was part of the Westminster Assembly. He spoke multiple times before the English Parliament back in his day. It was said of him, and I quote, he was always praying always preaching, 
always visiting the sick, always catechizing, always writing and studying. On his tombstone in St. Andrews, it says this, he was acquainted with Emmanuel's love. And this is what he wrote to one individual who was struggling in her identity, where God had her in her life, what was happening around her in her life. And this is what he wrote her. The great master gardener, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in a wonderful providence with his own hand, planted me here, where by his grace in this part of the vineyard I grow. I dare not say, but Satan and the world have said otherwise. And here I will abide until the great master of the vineyard decides to transplant me. And when he decides to loose me at the root and to plant me elsewhere where I can be more useful, to be more fruitful, when he plants me, when the one who planted me pulleth me up to transplant me, who dares to tell him, what are you doing? That's the recognition of God's sovereignty over your life. You are where you are because of the master gardener, because of the wonderful providence that he has extended to you. And in that place, you are to grow and to be fruitful and to be a steward and a servant, remembering who you represent and remembering that a day of accountability is coming and we are to be found faithful. Let's pray to that end. Lord God, we want to be faithful. We want to be stewards and servants who are recognized as those who only speak the mysteries of God. What a responsibility to be your agents, to be those who speak the word of God, as Paul says, all of it, the whole counsel of God. And help us to remember that all this begins with a relationship with you. You saved us from our sins. You gave us life that caused us to repent and ask for forgiveness. You cause us to believe the gospel and then to proclaim it. And I ask that every single person here who has declared that I am a follower of Jesus would be faithful as your servant and as your steward. And those who may not be your children yet, I ask that the Holy Spirit would enter that life, bring life into it, cause them to understand that they've been sitting against you and they need a savior, that they need to recognize their sin and ask for forgiveness, and you will forgive of every single sin. And you will welcome that individual into your kingdom and into your family, making him or her a servant and a steward for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.